Now we'll resume with the second Bible reading, which is Nehemiah 13, which, as you know, will be found after Nehemiah 12. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe and a Levite named Pedaiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, their assistant because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing? 
desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no lord sorry, so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned among the many nations? There was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favour, my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it is great to be here. I really love this service and what God is doing in all of us. It's great to be a part of it. Let's pray together as we hear from God. God, you are glorious, wonderful, faithful, and worthy of all praise. Teach us your ways now. Give us understanding, direct our footsteps, speak to us by your word. Amen. We all know that experience, don't we, of 
committing to doing something, and you get all excited, and then after just a short little while, it all fizzles out and falls apart. You know that experience? When I was in primary school, I signed up to do the World Vision 40-hour famine. I was pumped. I was stoked. Told everyone I was doing it, and I lasted a few hours before I snuck into the school toilets and ate a muesli bar when no one was looking. Maybe you've had that experience in New Year's Day. You know, you're making a New Year's resolution. This year, I'm going to uh, exercise more. I'm going to sleep more. I'm going to uh, wake up earlier or get, more, or get more rest or whatever it is. And you're pumped and you're excited, but give it a few days and it's all fizzled out. It's all over. It's all done. And this same thing can happen in your Christian life for those of you that follow Jesus. I'm sure if you've been a Christian for a little while, those of you that are here, you know that experience. You come along to church on a Sunday, and you leave refreshed, you leave excited, you leave encouraged, and yet Monday comes, and you've fallen back into the same habits you always had, and nothing really seems to have changed. Maybe you went to a Christian conference, you know, you went away for the weekend, and you leave that Christian conference spiritually over the moon. You are on fire for Jesus. You're ready to change the world for Jesus. And then by halfway through the week, you're having trouble finding time to read the Bible. Anyone know that experience? A bunch of people. Well, what we see here in the book of Nehemiah is that the book of Nehemiah, it's been an amazing journey, hasn't it? We're at the end of it. But what we've seen so far is that the city has been rebuilt, the walls are back, God's people have returned. We've seen them hear God's word and and declare that they're going to follow it. And last week, we saw a massive praise party. They were praising God. They were celebrating. They were ready to serve Him, ready to live for Him. They were spiritually on fire. And then comes chapter 13, what we just heard read. It all seems to have fallen apart. You see, if I was writing this and it was a blockbuster film, I would have ended last week, wouldn't you? You would have ended last week. You would have ended with chapter 12, verse 43. Listen to this. Just imagine the music soaring, the camera zooming out, and you hear Morgan Freeman say this. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. The end. That would have been pretty good. Good ending. Instead, you have chapter 13. Sin, compromise, rebellion. They haven't changed at all. It's hard to change, isn't it, as Christians? It's hard to change. Maybe you've ever wondered that about yourself. It's so hard to change. Well, Nehemiah, he's been out of Jerusalem for a little while. He's gone back to Persia, visited his old job in the palace, and he's come back to visit Jerusalem. He finds it's all fallen apart. What does he find gone wrong when he comes back to Jerusalem? The first thing he finds that's gone wrong is in verse 4. In verse 4. Why don't you have a read Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, 
new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priest. Do you remember Tobiah? Remember Tobiah? Have you been with us on this story through Nehemiah? You've heard of Tobiah. He's a bad guy, okay? Nehemiah, uh, Tobiah has been opposing Nehemiah the whole way through, making fun of God, making fun of Nehemiah. Well, here, Eliashib, who was one of the priests, he helps run the temple, he has put up a room in the temple on Airbnb. And Tobiah has been Airbnbing a room in the temple. And this was bad. This is an enemy of God's people living in the temple. And this room wasn't just any room in the temple, wasn't just the penthouse suite. It was the room where the offerings were kept, the tithes to make the temple run. Now, maybe we know that Tobiah had married into Jerusalem. He didn't infiltrate it in. Maybe he was related to Elisha in some way. So maybe Elisha had put his family relationship above God, which Jesus says not to do. If you've got to pick between your family and pick between God, pick God. Maybe that's what Elisha was doing. But it was evil. It was bad. Tobiah's there in the temple. The second thing Nehemiah finds is that people haven't actually been offering their offerings to the temple. The tithes and the offerings haven't been happening. People have become less and less generous as the time's gone on, as Nehemiah's been away. And so the Levites who worked in the temple, well, a lot of them have quit and found other jobs. And the temple isn't running as it should. This place where you meet with God and, and, and pray to him and, and make sacrifices for your sins, it's not happening. Not happening. The third thing that's gone wrong is the Sabbath. The Sabbath day is being ignored. You may remember from a few weeks ago, God asked that all of us would not work on one day a week. One day a week to rest before God. Well, the Jews had thought to themselves, well, if I work seven days a week, I'm going to get some more cash in hand than if I work six days a week. Let's just work on the Sabbath. They were trading on the Sabbath. They were working. People were coming in and out of the city. And Nehemiah sees that. He sees it. That's the third thing that's gone wrong. The fourth and last thing that Nehemiah finds has gone wrong is that God's people were marrying foreign nations. They were marrying foreign nations. You can see it there in verse 23. Look at chapter 13, verse 23. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Now, you've got to know this is not a racial thing here. It's not like God is racist and he doesn't like you marrying someone with a different colored skin. The issue here is that the foreign nations worshipped another god. That's the issue. And so God, at a few points in the Old Testament, commanded that the, Jew, the Israelites did not marry foreign nations so they wouldn't be led away into sin and distracted from God. That's what's going on here. And Nehemiah notices that the kids of these people who've married foreign nations, they've, they've been corrupted in a way. They, they can't speak the language of Judah. 
they, they can't read the scriptures, they, they can't worship in the way that God had set apart for them to worship. Their identity as, as God's people was being lost. It's a bad thing. We just got this picture, haven't we, of backsliding. Backsliding. And here's what's so crazy. If you flip to chapter 10, go back to chapter 10, look at chapter 10, verse 30. They've made all these promises to do these things. Or to not do these things, I should say. Look at 10.30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. But three chapters later, they're doing just that. Look at the last sentence of chapter 10. Last sentence of chapter 10. We will not neglect the house of our God. And a few chapters later, they're doing just that. Spiritual highs on top of the world, pumped up for God, and then it all just fizzles out, and there's no real change at all. Isn't that all of us? That's me. I'm sure it's you. Those moments where you know God's called you to do something, and you just feel like nothing seems to change. You've been trying, and nothing seems to make any difference. You get distracted by sin, distracted by the world. God's called us to be holy, and yet we live like everyone else. Backsliding. Well, if you were Nehemiah, what would you do? What would you do? I love those photos people put online uh, of their kids. There's one up on the screen. And they say something like, I left my kids alone for five minutes, and this is what I found. Five minutes I left you alone. I went and made a cup of tea, went and had a shower, and I come back, and this is what I found. You've covered the living room in paint. You've found the shaver, and you've given yourself a George Costanza haircut there on the right. Well, Nehemiah, he's uh, gone for five minutes, it feels like. We'll put that photo down. Thanks, Kate. It's a bit distracting, isn't it? Nehemiah, he's, he's gone. Well, we don't know how long he was gone for, but you know, it's only a few chapters. And he comes back and he finds this. It's all falling apart. Now, what could he have done? He could have just ignored it. Could have said, oh, look, you know, it's just a bit of sin. Like, it's not that bad. I mean, everyone sins. It's just a bit. You know, let's just ignore it. He could have compromised. He could have said, well, you know, times have changed. Times have changed. We've got a wall now, you know. Things are changing. It's a new time. We've got to be open-minded, more tolerant of different ways of doing things. That's all right. Could have done that. He could have given up on the people. Just said, stuff you, Jerusalem. You've been too annoying and just left. Going back to Persia, to the palace. Now, what does he do? He takes sin seriously. He takes sin seriously. He works to restore God's people. And he does it because he loves God. That's why he prays over and over again, remember me, remember them. He's doing it for his God, his Lord. That's why he takes sin seriously. Is that you? Do you take your sin seriously? 
You know, God hates your sin. He hates my sin. He wants us to take it seriously. So what does Nehemiah do? Let's have a look. What does he do about Tobiah? Eyes there, Airbnb out at room in the temple. Verse 6. While all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Elisha had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. The first thing Nehemiah does is he calls it for what it is, evil. He calls it for what it is. You know, it's so easy to downplay our sin. It's not that bad. We need to call it for what it is. Lust, greed, cheating, lying, whatever it is, it's sin. God does not like it. Nehemiah does that. He calls it evil. And then he deals with it. He deals with it. He walks into Tobiah's room. He grabs his flat-screen TV that he's been watching Netflix on and just throws it out, grabs his suitcase, kicks it out. Tobiah's gone straight away. And instead, he puts back in the tithes and the offerings that were meant to be in the room. What does he do about the fact that people aren't giving tithes and the temple isn't running properly? Well, he finds Levites and puts them back into their jobs and makes sure that the temple worship happens as God intended. What about the Sabbath? People working on the Sabbath, what does Nehemiah do? Well, he closes the gates of the city so that no one can come in and out of the city and work on the Sabbath. And just to be extra sure, he puts guards around the city, watching, making sure no one will work and trade on the Sabbath day. He takes it all seriously. But we're going to spend more time on the last one, the last problem Nehemiah encounters. Because we, we've, if you remember a few weeks ago, we looked in a bit more detail at the first three, and we were saving the fourth problem for tonight to look at in a little bit more detail. What does Nehemiah do in response to the people who are marrying foreign nations. Have a look down at chapter 13, verse 25. Let's look at his response. I rebuked some of them. I rebuked them and called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons. Nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? What does Nehemiah do to this problem? He takes it seriously again. He calls it wickedness. And then uh, he gets real serious. He starts to pull out their hair. Now, I don't know if that's a justification for me as a pastor to pull people's hair in church at 6 p.m. Don't worry, I won't do that. Um, It's taking a little bit uh, 
not really the, the point of the passage pulling hair. No, what Nehemiah does is he points them to Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, a king. And yet this wise man, wiser than you, wiser than me, what was his downfall? He married a foreign woman who led him into sin. That was his downfall. And it's not the only place in the Old Testament we see that happening. How do we apply this today? How do we apply this today? Well, as I've already said, the main point wasn't racial. The main point today isn't that you can't marry someone with a different colored skin. That is not the point. The point was always spiritual. We're told to marry someone who, if we're a believer, to marry someone who's also a believer. And we see this point in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says to marry only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we are told to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why is this so important? Why are we told, if we're, if we're Christians, not to marry people who are not Christians? Well, Kathy Keller is a, uh, works in New York City. She's been pastoring people for decades. And she's written an article reflecting on 40 years of pastoring people who have married people who are not Christians. And what she says is that if you marry someone who's not a believer, there are three possible outcomes, she says. Three possible outcomes. The first outcome, she says, is that Jesus will be pushed to the margins in your marriage. Jesus will be pushed to the margins in your marriage. This may look like being led into sin, like Solomon was. Or it actually may not look like that. It may look like things God's told us to do, being pushed to the margins. You know, sharing your devotional life with your spouse, showing hospitality to believers in your home, running Bible studies in your living room, hosting people in need, praying for missionaries, giving generously to the church, raising children in the faith, fellowship with other believers. All those things are going to have to be pushed to the margins of your relationship to keep peace with your spouse. That's one outcome. The second outcome, Kathy Keller says, is that not that Jesus is pushed to the margins, but that your partner is pushed to the margins. See, if you think about it, if, if you are a believer and you marry someone who is not, for you, hopefully, the number one person in your life is God. That's the number one person in your life. For someone who is not a follower of Jesus, presumably the number one person in that person's life is you, the believer, their spouse. And that can be really quite alienating. Kathy Keller says uh, says this, if he or she can't understand the point of Bible study and prayer or mission trips or hospitality, then he or she can't or won't participate alongside the believing spouse in those activities. The deep unity and oneness of the marriage cannot flourish when one partner cannot fully participate in the other person's most important commitments. The third outcome, Kathy says, is that the marriage itself experiences stress and falls apart. 
Or the marriage continues, but both partners kind of make a compromise, capitulate in important areas, and compromise, and so both parties are unhappy. There are three outcomes, Kathy says. Now, I know this is difficult to hear. God's commands are for our good, but they're not always easy. And it's tempting to say, oh, yeah, but I know someone who did the flirt to convert. I know someone, and it worked for them. It's going to work for me. It might feel right to you. And so because it feels right, you justify it to yourself. But can I tell you, just because there are stories of people it has worked for, there are so, 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 so many more stories of people it has not worked for. And it's ended up like one of those three options. And I know there are people in our church who have said to me they're happy to talk to anyone who wants to hear their story. And that's their life. I'll share with you one quote. This is from a lady in our church. I'm not going to say which service she's from. But in one of our services, she said this. I thought I was lonely when I was single. But being married to a man who does not love Jesus, I am lonelier than ever. He does not get the very thing that makes me, me. If you're in this room and and you are planning or thinking or looking for a marriage partner, can I encourage you? Choose someone who loves Jesus, who will encourage you to live for Jesus and live for Jesus with you. Now, there is so much more to say here. We could talk for a long time about singleness and the value God places on singleness and how much work we need to do as a church to love single people. And can I say... There are plenty of brothers and sisters across all of our services, single brothers and sisters, who have remained committed to God in this area, have chosen to be faithful to the Lord, and I know for them it is not always easy, but they are to be commended and given honor and prayed for because they love God deeply. But I wanted to say something really quickly to people here who may already be married to an unbeliever. Maybe that's your story. And I've spoken to many people today, actually, who are in that situation. You need to know, if that's you, your marriage is still a marriage. Your marriage is still a marriage. It is a marriage God is behind. And as a church, we will back your marriage to the end. We'll pray for your marriage, we'll encourage your marriage, and we will support you to the end. On the screen is a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says this, If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. If you've already made the promises for life to be married to someone. Till death do you part is the promise you made. God is behind your marriage. We are behind your marriage. And we will do everything we can to support and pray for you. Thanks, Kate. So there we are. There's Nehemiah's response to these 
four huge sins that are going on in the community. He takes it seriously. He calls it for what it is. And in the moment of backsliding, he tackles it head on. You've got to ask yourself, though, poor Nehemiah, he's struggling so hard, isn't he? He's trying to get him to change, and they keep backsliding. Why does it keep happening? Why can't they get their act together? Why can't you and I change? Why are we always so frustrated? We start something and it fizzles out. It's because the people in Nehemiah's day, they needed a heart change. They needed a heart change. You know, um, when you're gardening, I don't garden very often because I live in an apartment. <laughs> we have like a pot, but anyway. Um, but when you garden and you're trying to weed, Kevin and Donna were weeding today, spent the whole day weeding, great work. Um, you know when you're weeding, uh, and if you just pull out the top bit, the weed will presumably normally grow back. You need to get to the root. You need to get the root out, and then if you do that, the weed hopefully won't return. It's the same with being Christians. If we just, it's actually the same with being humans. If we just try and do it all in the external and change ourselves by being good people and think that that's what will bring God's approval, it won't work. We actually need God to get to the root of us, to change our heart, to transform us from the inside out. That's what Nehemiah was waiting for. He was waiting for that to happen, praying that God would do that. And 400 years later, he did. God did that. God sent Jesus who died for us for our sins so that backsliders like you and backsliders like me can find forgiveness and grace. He died for us to wash away all of our sins so that we can be at peace with our Father. Not just that, he gave us his Holy Spirit he gave us a new heart, transforming us from the inside out so we truly can change. We truly can live for him. You know those toys you get when you're a kid and it says on the box, batteries not included? You know those toys? I remember getting them as a kid and I was stoked. I'd open it all up, set it all up, get ready to play with it, press the button and nothing happened because there's no batteries. It's easy to think that's what the Christian life is like, but it's not. If you're a Christian, it comes with batteries included. It truly does, because God's given his spirit in you, the power to change, the power to live for him. You really can put your sin to death. You really can grow to be more like Jesus. The batteries are included. It's so easy to go, oh, I can never change, but you can you can't clean up your act by being a good person on the outside. That's not how we get right with Jesus. We need to trust him, be forgiven, and get a new heart. And yet, if you're a Christian in this room, you know, even now, we've got a new heart, but we still sin. We still backslide. It's because we're waiting, aren't we? Waiting for Jesus to come back. And when he comes back, he'll give us a perfect heart. He'll take away sin entirely. Nehemiah was in the old Jerusalem. When Jesus comes back, we're going to be in the new Jerusalem, the city of God, with God face to 
face, praising him, glorifying him, loving him, serving him. No more sin, no more crying, no more pain, no more backsliding, but perfect, living the lives we were meant to live. Do you long for that day? That's how the book of Nehemiah ends. That's how the book of Nehemiah ends. We've been encouraged to serve him. We've been encouraged to pray to him, sing to him, to build his church. And then it ends with us waiting, with our eyes fixed on that day when Jesus comes back, gives us perfect hearts, brings us to be in a perfect city with our Lord and Saviour. I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. God, we long for that day when we can be with you face to face with perfect hearts living with you. Thank you now that you have saved us and given us your spirit, would you change us and grow us so that we are more like your son, Jesus? Help us to live for you and take our sin seriously. And we thank you for your amazing love, your forgiveness for the backsliders like us, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, for your love and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.